Good morning, church. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This morning, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me to Mark chapter 6, where we have this fascinating um, scripture where Jesus was only able to lay his hand on a few people and heal them. I mean, that's it. Uh, that he was only able to perform a few amazing, miraculous healings in this town. What amazing scripture we have uh, this morning. We're going to get to spend a good bit of time in it. Uh, before we begin at looking at the scripture closely together, I want to welcome the kids. Some of the older kids from Cross Point Kids are in with us on the first Sunday of the month. As David mentioned, we're glad you're here. And uh, we invite you to participate with us by opening up the scriptures, parents and friends who are around them. Feel free to lean over and help them uh, find their way through, or better yet, listen to them and have them teach you because they've been learning well down the hall there. They probably have something to share with you. Um, So kids, we're glad you're here. Over the past few weeks, uh, while you've been down the hall and while many of the adults have been here Uh, We've been spending our time watching Jesus as he's traveling back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, and he's been preaching, and he's been making a great demonstration of his power to save. Now, after making these trips back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, he makes his way about 25 miles southwest of where he was, and uh, now he makes his way to the, his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then his family fled as refugees, really, to Egypt. And then he made his way back to Judea, specifically to what would become his hometown of Nazareth. And this is where he would be raised and where he would spend his young adult years in this small, backwood town of Nazareth. And this is where we get to spend our time this morning. So let's ask the Lord's blessing over our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us this morning. We thank you that your grace comes in the form of your word. We pray that your spirit would work in the presence of your word, and even in the midst of this preaching, that we would hear, that we would actually hear, that we would hear with faith. We pray that you would work in our midst and you would be glorified as we are transformed into your image. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. What are we told in this passage? Right away, as Jesus is making his way to this, his hometown, we're told that his disciples 
follow him. And then we're told, as he came, he came and he taught. So that means that Jesus didn't just go to Nazareth. Jesus came to his hometown, which is Nazareth. Mark is making sure that we make note of Jesus' experience here. This has been such an important part for me in spending time in the Gospel of Mark, is that I'm not just being told principles to apply to my life. I'm not just making observations about the, the nature of faith, but I'm actually being told about Jesus and what his experience in ministry was, what he endured on our behalf. And here we're told, the first thing we're told about him is that he came to this area, which was his hometown. Like, don't forget that part. Like, this isn't like some principle about Jesus not being accepted in his hometown. So if you ever find yourself in a position of not being accepted, perhaps it's that people are overly familiar with you. It's not just a principle. It's that Jesus went home. Jesus went home, and he wasn't welcomed well there. Do you see that? Do you see Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus together? See, Jesus rarely got a moment of rest. So surely, in, in making this trip 20 miles southwest of where he'd been ministering around the Sea of Galilee, surely in his hometown, they'll understand him, right? They'll receive him. They'll welcome him home. They'll give him maybe a seat of honor to put his feet up. He gets like the one recliner in town, all right? And he's going to get to rest for a bit. Now, it's also worth noting what Jesus came to Nazareth to do. He didn't actually come there to find a recliner. He actually came there teaching. He came there doing what he did in every town that he went to. He came there and began to teach. Now, one of the things that was noted for us right at the beginning in verse 1 is that his disciples followed him. Now, that's no small thing. Think about it for a moment. You see, my family back home isn't the kind of family that has a lot of pastors in it. Okay? I don't know what your family is like. Maybe you come from a long line of pastors. I know there are a lot of pastor's kids in this congregation, right? That's not the case in my family. But when I've gone home, I'd say I've been well-received. But imagine if when I came home, I brought CP Coast with me, all right? All the people that I'm ministering among that are following my teaching, y'all came with me. You can imagine what my family would say. Who is this guy? Why does he have all these people following him around? I mean, we know Jeremiah, little Jeremiah. What are all these disciples doing following him around these days? And then for Jesus, they take note of who the disciples are. They're not exactly great religious prospects. Jesus is hanging out, bringing in his train behind him a tax collector and a zealot, and they're busy calling Jesus rabbi. Friends, this isn't an impressive gang that came to town that day. And Jesus is doing what he came to do. He's teaching. Mark chapter 1 reminds us, and I try and draw us back to us repeatedly because there's so many miraculous events taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus. We have to remember what he came to do. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, 
that area where he had been ministering, and he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, and we're told the, what he, the summary sentence of his message is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like if you reached out with your hand like this, you could touch him. The king is here. Repent and believe in the good news, the gospel. What is Jesus central to his ministry? Central to his ministry is to teach the people. One of the reasons that I mention this is to make sure that we remember that in all the display of Jesus' power in recent weeks, we remember that Jesus was always teaching and always calling to repentance. Jesus was in the business of calling forth and shaping faith. We saw it even just last week in two of the incredible demonstrations of his power. What did he do right after he healed the woman and raised the girl? He's calling people to faith, into a relationship with him. Jesus came into the town preaching. How did they react to all this? Look at verse two with me. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished. That's how they react. They're astonished. Look at what they said. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? His teaching and his works. Jesus had been away for only a short time from his hometown, and he'd been ministering in that Galilee area. And now he's back, and his teaching in a way that they'd never heard before. And they're wondering, he's only been gone for a while. Where'd he get all this? Perhaps they thought Jesus sounded more like his radical cousin, John the Baptist, who'd gotten himself killed by the authorities, more than he sounded like anything that they heard around here in Nazareth. Where did he get this stuff? This, this is often the case when Jesus teaches even though there's sort of a swirling controversy around him, a, a curiosity, a fear, an envy, all sort of swirling around, there's always amazement, really by all who heard him teach. Jesus' teaching is confrontational. The, the one thing that we can't do with Jesus is nothing. He doesn't leave us in that position. His teaching confronts us. I hope you're confronted too this morning. One of the other things that I observe about what they were saying to him is there really isn't any argument against Jesus. There's no argument. There's rarely really any argument against Jesus. Actually, they were pretty impressed when he finally brought this ragtag band into the synagogue and he opened his mouth and began to teach. They were Amazed. There's certainly no argument that somehow either his miracles weren't real or that his teaching wasn't profound. That's a significant note to us today, especially in an age of great skepticism, that really it took centuries before anyone questioned whether or not Jesus was powerful. His contemporaries, the people who were just 25 miles away from where he did all these great works, they had no question that his works were mighty. And they had no question that his words were profound. So where's the scandal that's coming? 
The scandal that followed Jesus was not whether or not he was the real deal. If wise teaching alone was all it took to be a rabbi, then Jesus fit the bill. The problem is that they thought Jesus, with his entourage of disciples, his astounding teaching, was a step beyond his rightful place in the world. It wasn't that he wasn't powerful. It wasn't that he wasn't profound. It's that he was out of step with who he should have been in the world. It seems that the question was whether or not Jesus, not whether or not Jesus was a good teacher, but what was motivating Jesus? What's this hometown boy up to? Perhaps he'd come with the intention that even among the religious leaders who were accusing Jesus of doing some work by Satan or so, rather than by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps Jesus is, is doing these amazing things and, and teaching these profound realities, but he's doing it with some nefarious purpose because carpenters don't talk like that. What, is it, what does he have, how does he have the right to break out of the norms and social conventions to do what he's doing and say what he's saying? That's the thought process in Jesus' hometown. Now, you can be impressed by Jesus. You can even be astonished by his teaching. But what we discover in today's passage is that doesn't make you his disciple. You can be impressed and astonished, but that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. My dad used to say that the most dangerous department at a Christian university was the religion department. He said, look, theology queen of the sciences. Most curious puzzles demanding the, the most investigative of minds. What an interesting study theology is. But there were too many people in these departments who were impressed with religious words and the exploration of religious texts and puzzles to, to ferret out about theology, but too few actually followed the person Jesus Christ, and put their faith in the gospel that he taught. You see, in, in our passage today, they didn't reject his works and they didn't reject his teaching. They rejected him. They took offense, is the way the passage puts it. They took offense at him. You can see that in our passage this morning. Is this not the carpenter in verse three, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, not his works, not his words, him. Even though they were astounded, they took offense. We can see that in the series of questions that they ask. Is not this, they say, multiple times. You see, they knew Jesus. They don't say that he's the carpenter's son. They say that he's the carpenter, you see. But being a carpenter isn't a particularly prestigious role to play in a village of about 500 people. He's basically the fix-it guy in the community of a small town. It's certainly not a launching point for a great religious career. He's the guy that you call over to your house when something's broken. And then when the broken thing's fixed, he goes home. And that's all you have to do with the carpenter. That's important for our, our, sort of a cultural understanding 
of this passage. The cultural expectation of the people of Nazareth was that they would stay in their lane. Jesus' lane was the carpenter lane. Stay in the carpenter lane, Jesus. That's being a carpenter isn't just who you are. Being a carpenter is who you will be. And if there's anyone who comes after you, that's what they'll be too. Jesus is a carpenter, and that's it. So now you can see why it's such a big deal that Jesus has embarked on this ministry, that he's, he's called these people to follow him, and that the people that he followed him didn't belong following any rabbi, fishermen and tax collectors and a zealot. Jesus is calling together disciples who are much like people who run in the lane like himself. And they were breaking out of that lane to go about the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the people of Nazareth, they weren't impressed. In fact, they called him, what's the next thing? They called him the son of Mary. Now that's no small thing. We get to the meat of the insult. No one was referred to in that way. Even if the father was dead, a son would still be referred to in reference to his father. You see, the community of Nazareth is still holding on to the circumstances of Jesus' birth. They considered him illegitimate. Not just a carpenter, the illegitimate child of Mary, you know. You remember 30 years ago, that scandal. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the son of Joseph. Jesus, but Joseph had brought him into his family by marrying Mary. But the community in which he was raised, Nazareth, presumed that Jesus was an illegitimate child. And as such, Jesus had even less of a right to step out of social norms. In their eyes, Jesus' very existence was a taboo for the town. In their eyes... The taboo of Jesus was a stepping out of social norms, the lane that he belonged in of carpenter. What in the world is he doing teaching them about wisdom and doing mighty works? He should humble himself and sit down. They were watching Jesus. They saw him grow up alongside of his brothers and sisters. They saw him. They knew him. This is his hometown. And you know what they were? Unimpressed by the person Jesus. Sure, he didn't cause a great deal of trouble around town, but that doesn't mean that he's any better than anybody else, especially when you remember the circumstances of his birth, you see. Note, the scandal isn't his teaching or his works. The scandal is his person. Listen, the scandal of Jesus in Nazareth is Jesus's humanity. That's so important. This is always the case with Jesus. Jesus' flesh, his humility, even his suffering is so often a stumbling block for people. But what the Gospel of Mark does is he asks us to see Jesus. To actually see him and to watch him and to know him and not to consider him a scandal but a glory, unlike the people of Nazareth. Who Jesus was in the flesh was unimpressive 
and to the people of Nazareth unacceptable. Isaiah prophesied it. In Isaiah 53, it says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. When Jesus walked around, he didn't walk around with a glowing halo, you know? Didn't have some beautiful aura about him. He was plain, just a carpenter's son. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here in our passage this morning, we see this prophecy of the Messiah being played out in his hometown. And we'll see it in Jerusalem, the city of his ancestors, the city of David, when the man of sorrows is hung on a cross to die. Jesus is the man of sorrows, and we esteemed him not. Did anyone esteem Jesus? Was anybody really impressed by Jesus? It's worth noting that though surely Mary worried for her son, certainly she was concerned about this ministry that he was embarking on and would occasionally call him home, she also demonstrated great faith at many times. She was impressed with her son. She remembered the angel Gabriel in the midst of the slanders being lodged not only against her son, but against her, and she remembered the shepherds, and she remembered the wise men, and she was impressed with her son, her savior. But we have an even greater affirmation of Jesus than to recall Mary's song of thanksgiving, the Magnificat at his birth. We're told at the beginning of Mark that Jesus's father was impressed. As his son grew, the father watched the son. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, it says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I love the father's love for the son. And he saw every moment of his 30 years. The father was impressed by the God-man. And Mark is calling us to see the slander that Jesus endured and calling us to take the vision of the Father. By faith, we would enter into what the Father sees when he looks at the Son. You see, Jesus' entire town could lob slander, offense, but Jesus was affirmed by the Father. And by grace, through faith, In Jesus the Son, the disciples of Jesus too are made children of God. And we too find our estimation, our esteem in the world, not from the world, but from our Father in heaven and how he would choose to see us as his children as we are hidden in his impressive Son. Jesus' experience in Nazareth is is a, a series of extremes. We see that extreme at the end of the questions that they ask. It says, at the end of the questions, the conclusion was this, the end of verse three, and they took offense at him. It was pointed out to me that the word offense 
is the Greek word scandalon. I try to only use Greek words when they're easy to figure out, all right? You got that one? Scandal. Jesus, they, when they saw Jesus, they saw a scandal. The word for offense, scandalon, refers to a rope or a rock that trips you up. He's a scandal. He should just shouldn't be there because all he does is make him a mess of things. Colloquially, you might say he, Jesus was a stumbling block, a scandal, and an offense. But it's also used to refer to a stone that's rejected as flawed and unfit for building. Such a stone that's flawed and unfit for building is a scandal, and it's thrown out and it's of no real use. Isn't that an incredible description for the approach of Nazareth to Jesus, the carpenter, the legitimate son of Mary to boot? A scandal. I hope some of your minds went to Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected, the scandal, has become the cornerstone. See this. Jesus, God made flesh, the suffering Messiah and Savior of the world, is all in that image. That Jesus, that scandal, has become the cornerstone of the entire edifice of our faith. Nazareth has made their decision about Jesus a long time ago. He was discarded a long time ago as a mere carpenter at best, more accurately, an embarrassment. Jesus is a scandal. He's not a cornerstone. He's a stumbling block. The scripture repeatedly uses this image. It uses this image because it's so fundamental to our understanding of the faith. You see, we didn't receive a glorious faith just out of nowhere. We received glorious faith through the humility of Jesus. That's how we receive it. And friends, you haven't received the glorious faith if you haven't received it through the humility of Jesus. There is no glorious faith apart from the condescension of the incarnation, the infleshedness of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. I encourage you, write that down in the margin of your Bible next to this word scandal. For it stands in Scripture, Peter says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever trusts in that scandalous rock will not be scandalized. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whether you believe it or not, the entire edifice of eternity is built with him as the cornerstone. In this morning's passage, we are confronted by the person and the work of Jesus. What will we do with him? Will we esteem him according to the flesh? Or will we esteem him? Will our estimate of him be according to the spirit? If you will see Jesus 
with the eyes of faith, a humility to receive the gift of the Father and the person and work of the Son, you will find everything about this person, Jesus, to be excellent, beyond measure, worthy to become the central building block of your life and our faith together. We will find that it's appropriate that we would begin our gatherings together. Welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our cornerstone upon which everything else that we might be and do together is built. But if your estimate of him is according to your own judgment, your own expectations according to your esteem of the world, you will find yourself unable to hear his words. No matter how impressive or wise you think they are, Jesus will be an offense to you to be discarded or stumbled over. You will find that Jesus is a prophet without honor. And this is where Jesus goes in this passage. One of my favorite things about our time in Mark so far has been the incredible glimpses, the grittiness and emotionality of walking so closely and slowly with Jesus. We get to go so up close. Think about what we see here. Jesus came home. This was homecoming weekend for one of Nazareth's young sons. There should have been parades, right? Jesus' hometown boy is coming home to preach in the synagogue. Everybody come out and see Jesus, right? All the grandmas in town should have kissed his forehead and said, I knew you'd amount to something, right? And that, Jesus had every reason to hope for that. We're not, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the passage says it. I'm not saying that the passage tells us about how Jesus was so dejected because he didn't get his, his back stroked to make him feel better. But Jesus came home, and what he was called was an offense. He got ridicule. He got insults. Not only was his message rejected, he was rejected. Look at verse four. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You know, I've read that many times and I've thought, what a powerful little maxim. I'm gonna store that one away if I ever find myself in that position. But Jesus isn't here saying just another powerful word. Jesus is speaking about himself in the moment of his experience of dishonor. It's not some abstract statement of a detached philosopher writing down something for our instruction. It's the soul-crushing statement of a man who is giving his very life day after day, being pressed in by the crowds, doing mighty works for the sake of the suffering. He has no place to lay his head, and Jesus is saying that on that day he felt a new, experienced dishonor. He felt the slights and the slaps of the shame. Rightly, does Jesus stand alongside the prophets of old who endured famine and sword, prison and slander in the name of the Lord whose words they spoke? And now the Lord himself is there. And he's speaking the same word. And he stands alongside of them. 
and he endures their shame. Jesus is dishonored in Nazareth. His disciples saw all of it happening. I would invite you today also, as disciples of Jesus Christ, to see, to look on how Jesus was treated. If Jesus was treated this way, if he knew dishonor, how would we expect his disciples to be treated? What does a disciple or a prophet do but speak the words of the one who sent him. And in this room, is there anyone here who is more impressive than Jesus? Is there someone in this room that deserves a greater honor and glory than our Savior, Jesus Christ? We should not be surprised, but we must speak Jesus' words. And we should not be surprised to find dishonor in the estimate of the world, but we ought to find ourselves faithful in the estimate of the Spirit. How did Jesus react to all this? Well, he said these words, and then in verse 5, it says, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, right? And he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Mark's wording is a bit difficult here. It's difficult because it seems to express something that we know isn't true. I mean, it seems to suggest that somehow Jesus suffered some sort of loss of power to do something. But does that really make any sense? Let's remember, in the last two chapters, Jesus has calmed a deadly storm. He cast a legion of demons out of a man, and he raised a girl from the dead. That is not the sort of person that finds him in a small town unable to do something. That can't possibly be what that verse means. Matthew's wording is helpful, because Matthew's wording about this same event goes like this. He says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You see, they chose to look at the flesh of Jesus rather than the Spirit who is clearly at work in Jesus. This isn't just a mistake. It's blasphemy. There's no faith. There's no belief. And this gets to the heart of the issue. You see, Jesus is not a miracle-working sideshow. Neither is he a traveling, walking, walk-in clinic. The purpose of his great works was to call people to faith in his gospel. The purpose of his works was to bring people into relationship with him. He could not do what he was doing because there was no faith. There was no belief. There was only slander and scandal according to the flesh. Faith is the whole purpose and the effect of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus in his small town was amazed at their unbelief. There was no way he could stay in this town and bear any fruit without faith. And yet, he still healed people. I'm just... 
every time I've read that sentence, I'm like, that's just like so understated, right? Except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. How? Why did he do that? In a town where there's so much unbelief. Well, because even in this faithless town, there were a small few who believed. Ah, how encouraging. Even in a town that dishonored Jesus himself, there were a few who heard, believed, received. And every time, every time we watch Jesus heal someone in Mark, there is an interaction of faith, even in this faithless town. As amazing as Jesus' teaching is, what Jesus finds amazing is our unbelief. How blind we must be, how enamored and distracted by vain things we must be not to see Jesus for who he really is. And so the call this morning is the call to faith. It's the call to faith to see Jesus by means of the Spirit's work in us to see his Spirit's work in him. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm positive that this passage has, has, when, has been preached with that sermon title, and it wouldn't be a bad one before. Maybe that's what's going on here in Nazareth. They knew Jesus, they knew him well, and they had little ear for his lofty claims, right? But you see that phrase, that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. The phrase is in reference to the fact that the better you know someone, the more likely you are to find something ab- out about that person that's annoying. And so the more familiar, the more the person becomes like family. And for those of you who are married out there, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right? when that person that was so amazing and impressive became family, they also became very annoying. Because familiarity breeds contempt. The more you will find the person's weaknesses and the person's folly. But is that so with Jesus? There is one man In all of the history of humanity, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that the better you get to know him, the more you put him to the test, the greater he becomes family, the more you will find that he stands up to examination. You'll find that not only is he holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Not only will you find that he's merciful, really quite often, you'll find that his mercies are new every morning. Oh, great is his faithfulness. He's worthy through and through. You see, the problem with Nazareth wasn't that they knew Jesus too well. Familiarity did not breed contempt. The problem wasn't that they didn't know, wasn't that they knew him too well. The problem with Nazareth is that they didn't know him at all. You see, to know Jesus, you must know him by faith. They had committed the error that is most toxic to faith, the error of presumption. They presumed to know Jesus, but they failed to truly see and hear him. 
As Mark chapter four put it, Jesus quotes, they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand. Why? They saw with their eyes and they heard with their ears. They did not receive with faith. You see, the error of Nazareth was not familiarity, but faithlessness. Faithlessness breeds contempt. The people had seen Jesus, they'd heard Jesus, but they did not genuinely give attention to Jesus. I believe that there is a clear implication for us today. Particularly, there's many implications. I hope that the Spirit has already worked in you for you to hear them. I don't know what they are. I don't know how you have ignored the Master who has been in the midst of so many of you for far more than the 30 years than these people had. But I think that there is something for us as a family together in this place. I believe that there's an implication for us in how we gather and worship together. You see, along the way, many times I've been asked a very good question about the repetitious nature of our order of service. I think it's a good question, especially because so often such a thing has been done in error, a mere religiosity. We say and do many of the same things at Cross Point Coast. How about this one? Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ, who has called us together as his people and enabled our gathering by grace. Oh, I could put that on in the pastor voice too, right? And make it sound really religious, and we'll say it every single time we gather. You've heard that. But have you given attention to the one who has called the gathering? In our time of prayer, we confess two things. First, that the Lord is holy. Second, that we are not. You sat there in silence many, many, many times. But have you spoken to the Lord about your need for him? Even once? The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. You've taken the bread and the cup, but have you sought Jesus there? Do you want to know, to remember, and to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? The Lord bless you and keep you. What did you get out of this morning together? You got nothing if you didn't get Jesus. You got nothing if he doesn't go with you. I hope you enjoyed the song. I hope you weren't too bored by the message. But you got nothing if you didn't get Jesus. The trouble is not familiarity or repetition alone. The problem is with our attention and our disposition. There's nothing more familiar, more with us at all times than Jesus. Are we attentive to his constant presence at all times? Do we walk with him wherever we walk? By faith. The question is, do we earnestly seek him? I want to give you a passage, a passage for your reflection during the course of the coming week. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. In the midst of this great hall of faith, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For, 
whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, if you know that he is, and that he is who he is, and the way that he is, and what we've learned about him this morning, and that he rewards us when we're with him, you'll seek him. I think almost weekly, am I just singing songs? Or am I fully present to the reality of celebrating and remembering Jesus, who is present with us in the midst of the worship in the congregation? This morning, I call you to esteem Jesus. How? By drawing near to him in faith. Heavenly Father, we confess that faith is a gift from God. Faith comes from above, and so we look up. But we also are told that you are found by those who earnestly seek you. And so like the woman who made her way through the crowd and reached out her hand, like the father who came to you desperate at the death of his daughter, we come, we seek you. And we know, God, we confess you will be found. Your mercy is new for us today, this morning. Be merciful to your people. And God, for the one who has given little attention to you, who has been unimpressed by your person, who finds these religious words outmoded or out of place, Lord, I pray that you would soften that heart, not just to the teaching, but to you. And becoming soft to you, they would become soft to the redemption that is found in you and your gospel alone. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We trust you again to work in the midst of your people, all of us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.